there's a lot of things producers can look at, like uh, even on the very simple side, um, you know, if you're feeding silage or, or you know, uh, another feed stuff, just trying to minimize your wastes. So, you know, are you covering your bales? Are you covering your silage properly? Because even those little, you know, little bits that you have to tr- trim off the, the front of their silage pack, they add up over time and can mm-hmm. amount to a lot of, of feed loss. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. High D from DSM Fermanish can help your cattle get the vitamin D they need this winter. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, we are joined by Dr. Katie Wood, Associate Professor in the Department of Animal Biosciences at the University of Guelph. Dr. Wood earned her master's and PhD from the University of Guelph and her postdoctoral fellowship from the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Wood specializes in cow feed efficiency, gut health, methane emissions, and much more. We are so happy to have her on the podcast today to dive into some of those topics. So Dr. Wood, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're really excited to get um, to dive into some of these topics, a very wide variety of things that you specialize in. Um, but to start with, before we jump into those things, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the beef industry and your career path so far? I know I touched on it a bit in the bio, uh, but that was really brief. So could you, if you just want to, you know, give us your background and your, your, your history, I guess. Yeah, sure. So a little bit of unusual history. I didn't technically grow up on the farm, um, but my grandparents uh, had a purebred Simmental operation and uh, um, did a lot of showing when we were young. And as you do, I started in 4-H and in their Simmental Breed Association showing cattle and um, quickly became very passionate about it and uh, stayed in 4-H throughout my years and then um, decided that I wanted to pursue agriculture as a career. And uh, I was always kind of a nerdy kid too. So when I found out that I could like blend cattle with science, it was like, yes, this is what I want. Um, And then, yeah, I haven't, haven't really looked back. I still own a few cows and part ownership in a few cows, but uh, um, yeah, I have to, have to keep them at a friend's place because I don't have a farm of myself anymore. But yeah, certainly owe a lot to my grandparents and their interest in cattle and agriculture when I was young um, to lead me where I am today. Data shows most cattle don't get the vitamin D they need, especially in winter months. High D from DSM Fermanish can ensure your cattle get the recommended vitamin D level to support bone strength, help immunity, and improve performance. Visit dsm.com forward slash HY-D to learn more. I think that probably could be, a lot of people could say that same thing, you know, that we owe a lot of our, the things that we're involved in or our love of something to our parents and grandparents, you know, along the way. I, I 
you know, I think that we all, many of us probably share that same kind of thread. Yeah, yeah. And I tried to spend every waking moment that I could at their farm rather than at home. So it was, yeah, a good, good time spent with my grandparents. Well, that's great. Well, we're going to jump right into it. So the past few years across the beef industry, I mean, I, I don't live in Canada. Spoiler alert for our listeners. I live in the United States. Um, but at least down here, inputs have got, you know, have really gotten very expensive over the past couple of years. And I'm assuming that that's similar in yep. Canada. And so that has made feed efficiency, feed efficiency even more crucially important. And so I guess like to start off with, do you have any advice for producers who are looking to cut costs? So like save money on cows but not cut productivity? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things producers can look at. Like, uh, even on the very simple side, um, you know, if you're feeding silage or, or you know, uh, another feed stuff, just trying to minimize your wastes. So, you know, are you covering your bales? Are you covering your silage properly? Because even those little, you know, little bits that you have to tr- trim off the, the front of their silage pack, they add up over time and can mm-hmm. amount to a lot of, of feed loss. Uh, and so simple things like that to, you know, taking a, a better look at the, the commodities you have and doing some feed testing, um, making sure you're aligning with what you have available to what your animal's requirements are. And, you know, there's particular times in the, the cow's life cycle where you can uh, be a little thinner on your nutrition and get away with it. And that's kind of the opportunity that um, you can save some real feed costs and uh, maybe using some alternative feeds like uh, a lot of crop residues um, I promote quite heavily. Um, And again, trying to reduce those feed costs and and help producers save money. That's interesting that you bring up alternative feeds. Um, What, because I'm actually was working on an article on a different project about alternative feeds. So um, just briefly, like, what are some of the alternative feeds that you see in Canada that are, you know, that might not be different, you know, that we may not have down here in the United States? Because obviously agriculture is very regionally, you know, varied across regions. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's similar to the U.S. We're highly varied as well. Um, here in Ontario, um, we get a little bit warmer climate. So we have a lot of corn that we grow. And so feeding, you know, corn residue um turning cattle out on pasture this time of year to clean up corn is, is another way that um, you can reduce costs. Uh, one thing again in Southern Ontario, cause we get a little longer growing season than some of the rest of the country is, you know, looking at systems like double cropping. So um, going in after wheat and putting in a second crop that you could either graze or use as take off as a forage crop um, is another way to kind of extend your land base kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, we do things that most other areas would do too, like feeding crop residue. So, you know, incorporating straw into rations, um, opportunity feeds as well. So um, I'm not too far from Toronto and, you know, we get a lot of food processing that happens kind of outside the city. So uh, in the feedlot side, certainly you see a lot of bakery waste going into feedlots. So, you know, this time of year, everything's kind of peppermint scented, but uh, those (laughs) things make their way to feedlots as well. Um, Some parts of the province grow a lot of vegetables as well. So, you know, we'll see potatoes or carrots um, make their way into cattle feed also as an opportunity feed to try and uh, reduce some feed costs. 
um, you know, basically we're, we're fairly diverse as well. So, um, you know, seeking some of those opportunities out and, you know, I, I got a call the other week about someone that has a microbrewery and is looking to get rid of their distiller's grains. And I'm like, great. I know some feedlot guys that will easily take those off your hands. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, we're, we're fairly urban uh, around here. So lots of kind of opportunity from byproduct feeds. Um, we see a lot of. I love that phrase that you used, um, opportunity feeds. I have never heard that before. I, I mean, I've heard the word opportunity, obviously, but I've never heard what I would normally just call like byproducts phrased yeah. as opportunity feeds. And I think that is just genius. Like, I'm going to start, I will credit you when I do this, but I'm going to well, start I, using that. I, and like I, public- that with, I read it somewhere in some um, popular press article and I was like, yes, that is exactly what they are. So I can't take credit, but I'm definitely passing it on. Well, I have to give credit to you because I didn't read this article. So I'm going <laughs> to start using this in like my social media stuff and in keynote speeches. Like I love that opportunity feeds because that's what it is. It's taking an opportunity, like you have the opportunity to use this feed to, you know, put more gain on your cattle or to reduce food waste on the human side or, you know, on the other ag product side. Like, I just love that. I I wrote while you were talking, I wrote it down and I circled it. So I, that is fabulous. Yeah. Listeners look for me to start using opportunity feed all the time. (laughs) I love that. So I'm glad that you shared that with us. Um, In terms of your research, and cow feed efficiency. Are you doing any research right now that you can share with us about feed efficiency in cows? Yeah. So uh, currently we've got a lot of projects looking at the relationship between methane emissions and feed efficiency. Um, I mean, we know there's a close relationship there, but um, one of the things that I have some interest in is, is whether, you know, animals that are initially measured for their gas emissions if that changes over their their production cycle. And so we've been following this group of heifers. This will be the third year and, and we're they've got the cows currently on trial. But we measured them, you know, before they had their first calf. We measured them um, with their calf at side. We measured them after weaning. And then again we've met we're measuring them one more time a full year from um, their last calf. And curious to see, you know, how if those animals that were initially, you know, either feed efficient or low emitters, um, mm-hmm. if they continue to to be such along their kind of productive life cycle. And uh, yeah, fortunate enough to get some long term funding on that because certainly it's a three year project. So yeah. um, it's not a, a one month thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we we're able to follow this cohort um, through, and uh, yeah. Our, Initially, like we've seen, as we would expect, that the relationship between feed efficiency and, uh, in this case, RFI, we ranked the, these heifers in, into RFI quartiles and very strong relationships. And dry matter intake does a lot to influence both efficiency and, and uh, methane emissions. So uh, we're certainly following up with that. And um, are, we're fortunate that on our, on our green feeders, we also measure CO2 and O2. So okay. we're looking at um, if we can use these measurements as another quick way to identify efficient animals, as opposed to doing a very long, you know, 70 day feeding trial, where mm-hmm. we would only need, you know, a week or so on the green feeder uh, to be able to identify 
cows that are efficient or inefficient. And maybe we don't need actual feed intake, so maybe we can do that out on pasture too, which would be kind of neat. So we're still working on the modeling for that, but it's a, I think it's going to work out. Yeah, that's interesting. That would be interesting to have it out on pasture um, to measure that. Um, you know, you're you're. It's like you saw my show notes because you're just guiding us along so well through yeah. topic to topic. But um, I'm very passionate and invested about the role that cattle play in a sustainable food system. And um, while I am a huge proponent of the fact that like cattle have a very minimal effect on our um, climate as compared to transportation or industry or something like that, like, you know, I think the industry is always going to continue to try to lower our already minimal impact. So through your work, you touched on it a little bit in that last answer, but like, would you care to expound about what you have learned about cattle and methane emissions maybe in terms of like, what specific feeds you see that reduce methane emissions, if there are feeds that increase them, maybe what you think is coming five down the road, five years down the road or something like that? Yeah, I mean, this is a super hot topic right now. And almost everyone in my field is is doing some sort of this type of work, right? And um, we've done a little bit of work looking at some feed additives. Some work, some don't. Um, one of the projects we just finished up and my student uh, Katie Kay is, is writing up the work now for an abstract. Um, but I was also interested to see if uh, animals respond the same to a mitigation strategy. Mm-hmm. So this kind of this concept of, you know, individualized feeding programs. Do we need to feed some of these expensive feed additives to every member of the herd? Or is it maybe just a few of the higher emitters that can benefit from from using a a feed additive to reduce emissions. And yeah, we found that, um, you know, the low emitters, they, when we use the mitigation strategy, which in this case was canola oil um, and yeah, other, others have used canola oil before. Um, It is not inexpensive, which is the problem with uh, many of the feed additives. It is, is not, not a cheap thing to feed. Um, But it did, lower emissions about 20%, which is kind of in line with most most people see with oil. Um, It was about 6% of the diet. Um, But uh, some interesting things we saw was that it lowered the emissions about double in the already high emitters than the low emitters. Wow. So the magnitude of difference was was quite a bit different between them. That's huge. That's a huge yeah, I mean, twenty percent on its own is a huge difference. But then yeah, that was about- the average of the two groups. But um, yeah, it was it was closer to thirty on the the high emitting group and closer to ten or eleven in the low emitting group. So wow, yeah. So yeah, learning learning some things and uh, yeah. uh, kind of simple questions relating to methane emissions, but um, um, important questions and and. Um, you know, measuring emissions is hard anyways outside a research setting. So um, even kind of benchmarking some of these values for policymakers is also mm-hmm. really important, I think, too. And so we're trying to do a good job of that and capturing all our data and um, make it available to those that make the policies. Is that happening a lot in Canada right now? Like policies targeted at, reduce like, targeted at um, agriculture operations specifically? Well, we, we have a carbon tax that's um, 
been implemented across the country, but there's a lot of political debate on on it. And um, it seems like every day they change kind of what where it's going. Um, they've had most recently released some agricultural exemptions, but we don't really exactly know what's coming down the pipe. But I want to make sure that whatever it is, it's we have some data to back it up. Because um, as you say, cattle emissions are already quite low in Canada mm-hmm. and the U.S. And so um, I don't want to get caught up in the global debate where we are already far superior to the global average. Right. Um, so we need to make sure we have that data to support it. Right. That's a great point. Um, we don't. Yeah. Um, it was a. Oh, it was Dr. Jude Capper. Um, who used to live in the United States, but now has, I, I believe she's back in the UK. If she's listening, please don't be upset with me, Dr. Capper, though I don't know exactly where you are. But um, I remember her saying one time, a long time ago, that like if um, if all the countries, like if more countries in the world raise beef the way that we do in the United States and like Canada, you know, that would overall lower global emissions from beef specifically. And I haven't, I've never forgotten that because it's just simple, like quote unquote, simple stuff, like every cow having a calf every year, like that has an impact, you know, using better genetics. And so that, that's just really stuck with me because you said earlier, it's like simple questions, but like simple questions lay the basis of found, you know, lay the foundation for the knowledge to, you know, to build upon. So it's just interesting that you said that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've heard that same thing as well. And, and you know, we, some of these relationships we know already, but, you know, farmers may be a, a tentative about talking about emissions, but lowering methane emissions also improves your feed efficiency. So that's a, a good message for farmers to, to chase as well, If even if they don't buy into the the emissions the greenhouse gas side of it, the environmental side of it. I'm writing that down just so I can share that later. Lowering methane emissions also improves efficiency. I love that. Did I say that right? Lowering yeah, methane. yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought you said. I wrote that one down. You're giving us a lot of great sound bites in this. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's good. It's a good thing. Um, you know, so far we've talked about, you know, pretty wide variety of things that I hasn't really even like spiritually touch the tip of the iceberg for you on what you work on. Um, and I'm sure that feedlots are closely related to both the idea of feed efficiency and reducing methane emissions. Um, you know, do you have to, sh- do you care to share any insight on your work on rumen acidosis and gut barrier function? I don't know much about either of those topics. I am not a feed. I don't own a feedlot or work on a feedlot. Um, yeah. Half lady. So I'm, I'm very interested to learn more about some of these feedlot, if these are feedlot specific problems or, or just share more about that, hear more about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of do both cow-calf and feedlot in my role and uh, bringing with me out of my postdoc in the University of Saskatchewan, working with Dr. Greg Penner, um, who is a very good gut physiologist and learned a lot of things from him and kind of carried that into my position here at Guelph looking at some of these metabolic and gut health issues that our feedlot cattle uh, seem to encounter, which, you know, if you have um, a gut that's sick and maybe inflamed, you're not absorbing as many nutrients as you can and likely impacting feed efficiency as well. And so, yeah, we've done some work. We've done a lot of work 
recently with yeast um, as a feed additive in the feedlot. Okay. And uh, yeah, our, our initial study, um, one of the challenges with working with yeast is that there's so many different types and every company has a different strain that they use at a different dose. So we really wanted to look at, you know, one strain, one dose across a couple of different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, we first tried it in kind of a more natural feeding system with no other additives. Um, and it worked like gangbusters. Like we saw a huge improvement in feed conversion in our steers with the yeast additive. And so um, it's not that common to see a lot of, you know, natural based systems uh, in Canada, probably similar to the U.S., uh, and so our next kind of group of studies was looking at how it performs with menensin and with tylosin mm. in the diet. Okay. Uh, and we didn't essentially didn't see any of those large improvements like we did um, with our natural based system. But, um, you know, we didn't see any disadvantages either. So um, most of our work was done all in the research center. So we, we thought that, you know, there could be an opportunity maybe if animals were um, on a more commercial environment where they maybe, you know, have higher stocking density, have more environmental stress, that kind of thing that um, maybe work a little bit like an insurance policy and help with that. But there wasn't any huge improvement in performance or carcass traits. Um, yeah. And then uh, one other thing we did, uh, I, uh, we're working with Greg Penner as well, we did a study uh, where we actually induced an acidosis challenge on some cannulated heifers. And we were interested to see how they recover from that acidosis mm-hmm. challenge with the theory being that, you know, the yeast maybe help uh, speed up some of the recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't end up being different from our controls, which maybe was expected with some of the results with the menensin we saw. Um, but we did learn a lot about kind of the recovery of acidosis and um, we ended up um, using uh, a dosed marker into their rumen and then into the abomasum um, so we could get, you know, whole tract um, barrier function or if it was just happening in the hindgut. And we saw that actually the hindgut was quite impacted following oh. the acidosis challenge and even stayed fairly leaky for about uh, up to about 15 days after that induced acidosis challenge. Okay. Which to me makes me think, okay, we always worry about the rumen. Maybe we need to start with looking at what's happening after the rumen. Um, mm-hmm. there could be some, you know, inflammation or, or something like that, that's um, causing, causing some gut health issues in those animals. So um, yeah, that was a cool result, even though our yeast didn't work. Um, but we learned some things about acidosis anyways. Right. I mean, I mean, that's what research is. It doesn't always tell you what you want to hear, but it does always tell you something. Yep. Yeah, um, exactly. I do not. My master's is in animal um, well-being and behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I did not do any nutrition work. My only work with rumen fluid was when I lived in Australia and had to stick my hand down in there and get some of it. But I don't know <laughs> very much about it. But it's most of the work been done like I know that rumen acidosis that work is done on the rumen but has there been other you know you're talking about the abomasum and other stomachs has there been much work done on acidosis in the other stomachs uh there's a little bit around you know um more recent work as well so um back when I first started my postdoc one of the first things we were looking at is you know is barrier function different across the regions of the gut. And we found 
that yes, in fact, there were regions that were quite leaky. Uh, the jejunum was one other that that came up as well as the the cecum, and so uh, you know that that kind of historical thinking that this only happens in the rumen is starting to shift a little bit. And there's mm-hmm. others that have published some work looking at histology changes relative to acidosis challenge. A lot of it's coming out of the dairy side because um, certainly dairy cattle are susceptible to acidosis as well, right. especially during right. transition. Um, and so, I mean, we're learning from the dairy side as well. Um, although the, the acidosis can be quite different because um, those dairy cattle are not on as high grain a diet as we would see in a feedlot. And so right. there, there could be some differences in, you know, how that acidosis uh, kind of unveils and if there's different region challenges or, um, you know, it, it might not be about low pH either because those well-adapted steers, even though they could have a very low pH, um, can still be very healthy and do quite well and have great performance because of that. Um, and so uh, we're learning more and more about that, but it's still probably a relatively new area, I would say. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it sounds like it. I mean, you sound are very knowledgeable on it, but for the amount of research that we know has been done on the rumen, you know, it's like a drop in the bucket. The other um, stomachs are like a drop in the bucket to that. Yeah, do you exactly. Is, um, do you foresee your research program and you and your colleagues maybe focusing more on that in the night, in the future? Or do you think you have higher priorities in other areas? Uh, well, uh, on the feedlot side, definitely this is somewhere I want to keep looking at. Um, you know, it, it starts to ask a question, right? Like, should we look at rumen protecting some of these additives so that they're functional in the hindgut? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly that's a newer area, but where we can use, you know, the concepts we know in nutrition to kind of try and tackle some of these other other issues. And, you know, that's now we're in the hindgut. We can start looking at some of the monogastric data as well and and look at maybe some feed additives that, you know, our chicken and pig producer friends are using um, and see if it there can be applicable to the beef industry also because uh, we can learn from each other on some of that as well. No, that's interesting. That's um, it's just really interesting. It's not I'm not in that world every day, so that's interesting to to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was prepping for this for this podcast episode, there was something I was you know I was reading your the website, the University of Guelph website with your information on it and such, and there was something there that piqued my interest, and that is lactocrine programming. I had never heard that. And I didn't even Google it because I wanted to come in completely with a blank space for it, for you to talk about it. Cause that, you know, again, I've never heard of it. So I'm just wondering if you can explain that for me and our, and the rest of our audience, what lactocrine, I can't even hardly say it. <laughs> lactocrine programming is. Yeah. So this is a kind of a new word out there as well. Um, and this stems from some of my interests in developmental programming research. And so I've done a little bit of work looking at developmental programming and kind of my phase of choice is in the third trimester. And uh, we've we've done some projects. Um, We did one project uh, looking at protein supplementation in late gestation. And we thought, you know, no one milks these beef cows. Let's check the (laughs) colostrum and try and milk these cows um, and see if there's a difference between what we fed in, in the third trimester 
and our colostrum and, and uh, milk composition. And we, we saw some differences. And so that, that kind of concept is that, um, you know, in, in the calf's early life, although they've been born, um, often their first couple meals can have a big impact on the direction of their life. And so um, although when we think about colostrum, we're thinking about antibodies and IgGs, there is, you know, 50 or more other proteins that we know of, and those are the ones we just know of, um, mm, that also right. are, you know, big bioactive components that have, you know, growth modulating potential and all sorts of other things. Um, so uh, one one area that we took a closer look at, and, and my PhD student who's defended now, uh, Dr. Kryn Hare, who's now doing her postdoc um, at Saskatchewan, who I worked with, with my, uh, Mike Steele, my colleague here. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw differences in insulin in the colostrum with our protein oh. supplementation. So that let us think, well, insulin is very stimulating for growth. Um, and so we thought, well, um, maybe this colostrum that has been developed by what the cow's been eating in her third trimester, and well, even more specifically, probably about six to eight weeks before calving, maybe the 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 concentration of the bioactives other than IgG can have an influence on the development of the calf. And so Corinne did this study. Um, we did it in dairy bull calves because they're um, nice and inexpensive to use and can have good control over them and things like that. And so we fed um, five or 10 times the level of insulin um, wow. in the colostrum to these, these little bull calves uh, and then euthanized them after their second meal and looked at uh, gut development. And we saw some differences that the insulin seemed to stimulate some regions of the gut. And so, um, yeah, we think that 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 programming effect from from that first two meals um, could potentially have some longer-term impacts on the growth and health and and development of those young calves. And so, uh, yeah, super cool area. we, we did other work where we took some of the colostrum and, and sent it out for proteomics and lipidomics. And I think we had like 213 proteins that we characterized and wow. 40 of them were different with our nutritional treatment. Uh, so certainly a new area. And um, yeah, I'm not that much of an expert on kind of the bioinformatics side, but learning some of these things that are could potentially be in colostrum that can influence the calf is pretty cool. That is so interesting. And just to think, I mean, just to have that thought of like, let's look at what's in that colostrum and how we can impact that. That's just, that's very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a little bit tough work to do. Not many people go and milk their beef cows. And right. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to give credit to those students because they, they, did a good job of, of doing that. And um, yeah, not easy research to do, but they, they were able to uh, milk those beef cows out and get colostrum. And we have colostrum samples galore now that we can have fun with. So, yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's really interesting, but also kind of amusing to visualize your students, you know, like getting the, <laughs> doing yeah, the work. Yeah. So yeah. It's time for our famous three. We have a time and labor-saving product for you. 
Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy Agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting, and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Well, let's change directions a bit. Uh, so we ask the same three questions of every of every guest on the show. Okay. And I gave you a heads up on these. Yeah. Listeners, I don't like to spring these on our guests very often, like just with no warning, because I don't think it's very fair. So I did give Dr. Wood a heads up on these. So on the first one is, what is your favorite beef or cattle related book? Yeah. So I pulled this one off my shelf and this book um, was written by a Canadian rancher named Frank Jacobs. And I think he, he must've written it as a passion project. And it is the biggest love letter to cattle farming and ranching. It's written very lighthearted. Um, it talks about, you know, the circle of worship being at these auction marts, um, and the, and the <laughs> cattle industry in general. And it's just a fun, light read. And if you're passionate about cattle, um, it, it's a really kind of great read and also further drives or passion about being in such a great industry. So uh, I don't, I doubt this is in print anymore, but if anyone can find it, it's a great read. I'm going to have to look on Amazon. It is. And I don't think you actually said the title of it. It's called Cattle Cattle and Us, Us, Frankly Speaking. Cattle and Us, Frankly Speaking. And it is by Frank Frank Jacobs. Um, And I am actually looking on Amazon as we speak for you can. It is paperback. And is oh you can get it on you can get it on Amazon for twenty three dollars. Awesome, yeah, highly recommend. It is available. Um, that is exciting. I'm actually my husband. This episode will not be out before Christmas, so I'm actually going to get that for my husband because he will love that. He will absolutely love that. So um, that's a great recommendation. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So the next book question. Oh, I just ruined it. The next question is, what is a book that is not related to the beef industry? That's like your favorite book or one that you're reading right now that's not about cattle? Yeah, well, if we we think about favorite book, and this is going back to me being a very big nerd as a child, but I love Harry Potter. Um, and so I cannot say any other book besides the Harry Potter series is my favorite. Um, just so, you know such a great read and definitely something that really sparked my interest in reading when I was kind of at that young age and uh, made me want to read more. And so, um, yeah, little, little childish, but I still love those Harry Potter books and so many great memories. Um, it's not childish. Yeah. Um, you have to pick one though. Cause I think there's like, oh. is there like 10 of them? Maybe I don't know. I've never yeah. read them, but you have to pick um, one. Probably by the third one, prisoner of Azkaban is my favorite, I think. Yeah. Okay. Prisoner, I have heard that one before. My grandma, um, when they were first coming out, I think I was like a young, like an older elementary or a young middle schooler, maybe when those books were first coming out. And I remember my grandma and grandpa got me like every book that had come out so far in the series, like hardcover, like nice hardcover books. And I took them to the bookstore and exchanged them for (laughs) something different. It's just not my flavor of soup. So I, uh, I was a historic, a historic, uh, fictional, historical fiction is the word I'm trying to say. And so to this day, I still haven't read them, but I know that 
they are super popular. So you are obviously not alone with that. So yeah, yeah. And I was just at that perfect age, kind of same middle school type age, grade nine. And I was like, what is this book? And I read the first one. And then I was like, Oh, my gosh. This was so <laughs> great. And uh, yeah, and waited in line at midnight for the the openings and ordered them off Amazon when Amazon only sold books. Yeah. Long ago, right? A lot of people that don't know that it was just a bookstore and now it's literally everything. Store. Yeah. 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 Showing my, yeah. my age and my gray roots a little bit, maybe, but. Well, mine are white. It's okay. It, it's okay. <laughs> Um, well, that's great. So my, our last kind of like rapid fire question here, I guess, is when you think of someone you admire, what is a trait they have that has made them successful? Yeah, I mean, oh gosh, there's so many, so many things. I think for me, um, and someone, I saw this quote somewhere off an academic website, but, um, uh, you know, we're all smart. Distinguish yourself by being kind. And I Ooh. think that... Um, to heart when I try and teach and try and mentor my students. You know, everyone's smart in their own different way. Um, if you can be show some kindness um, and some support to your students and your colleagues, I think that goes far and distinguishes you among others. So, yeah, and so that's kind of, and I don't know who said it, so I can't attribute it to anyone, but. Well, I'm attributing it to you because I wrote it down. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's now yours. <laughs> uh, I definitely was not the originator of that one, but uh, well, I don't, yeah, but I don't know who it was. So it's now it's in my mind when I use it, it is from you, Dr. Wood. So uh, that's a great, great mindset. Yeah. And there's so many, I mean, I've had so many wonderful mentors in my life um, and through my academic career too. And when I look at some of them, they're also really good people. And I think, I think that's really important too. That's great. Yeah. Well, a great feel good way to, to wrap up our episode. That's great. So that is, I mean, that's all the questions we have and, and all the time we do have for today, Dr. Wood. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Beef Podcast. I learned, I really learned a lot about several different topics and, um, and I appreciate that. And you exposed me to like four or five really great, like bullet points here that are, are going to last me beyond the episode recording. So thank you very much for sharing your time and your talents with us here today on the podcast. If someone wants to learn more about you or your work at the University of Guelph or something like that, where can they do that? Yeah, so most of our work is go, goes out on a, a website and through our, well, I guess I don't call it Twitter anymore, X, I guess. Um, uh, beefguelph.ca is uh, for all the beef-focused research, but a uh, uh, at Guelph. A lot of it is from our lab. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we often post to Twitter. Um, we have a lot of producer days. Um, we'll have recordings of some of our producer events that go up on our website. Um, and then, yeah, it's a great way. Um, you can subscribe to our newsletter off the website as well. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, we have uh, kind of tidbits of research, what's happening, links to articles in the news from our work and all that kind of fun stuff. So that's probably okay. the best way to get a hold of us. All right. So I have written beefguelph.ca in the show notes and that you can, and that followers can subscribe to your newsletter, the newsletter on that website. What is the X handle for those who'd like to follow? It's also beef Guelph. Okay. But is there a period in it for CA or is it just beef Guelph? I think it's just beef Guelph. Let me just pull it up here so I don't say it wrong. 
Listeners, I am writing these things in the show notes that you can go down and check that out if you'd like to visit the Beef Guelph website or subscribe to the newsletter or follow them on Twitter, formerly X, formerly known as Twitter. You can do that as well. Is it Beef Guelph? Yeah, Beef Guelph. Beef capital at Guelph is a capital. Okay. Guelph, yeah. Awesome. So I put that in the show notes for our listeners. You guys can check out all the great research in many uh, exciting areas coming out of the Beef Guelph, the department there um, at the University of Guelph. So again, Dr. Wood, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed meeting you virtually and speaking with you and and thank you for sharing your time with us. So um, thank you for joining us and to our audience. I hope that you will join us next week on the Beef Podcast. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.